Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Leadership, the podcast where we talk about the social responsibility of business leaders and look at the week's news and try to figure out who's getting it right and who's stepping in it. My name is Caleb Gardner, and I'm here along with my lovely co-host, Adrielle Parker. Hello. How are you doing, Adrielle? I am doing okay. It is uh, very cloudy and dreary over here in New York. Apparently, we are preparing for some parts of a hurricane. Um, I don't know. It's, It's, yeah, it's... Fall is approaching. Summer is is certainly escaping us. And I think a lot of people feel that. (laughs) Yeah. We had a weird transition into fall weather this last week. It was like all of a sudden went from like literally like 95 degrees on Monday to 68. Yep. Yep. Just all of a sudden, Uh, which by the way, of those two, I will take the 68. Same. day. (laughs) I do not like being hot and sweaty. Yeah. I'm not a fan at all. And also, you know. Running the AC is just not, it's not eco-friendly. So, yep. I hear you. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah. Um, I was pretty tired. Like, I woke up last night kind of in the middle of the night. Do you ever have, like, middle of the night, yep. like, anxieties or, like, you just can't get back to sleep? Oh, yeah. This happens to me very rarely. Mm. But when it does happen, I'm always surprised by it. So, it's almost worse. I'm like, wait, what is happening? Mm-hmm. And, and my wife is always like, welcome. That happens to me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> like usually I'm a very deep sleeper, but she yeah. she struggles a little bit more um with being restless at night. But yeah. So anyway, I am on my I think third cup of coffee already okay. is is the point. Okay. And I know we established last week that you are three a week. So I mean, what number are we on today? I'm on one. I'm well, for those of you that can't see, I'm holding my my iced coffee up and I'm only maybe a third or fourth of the way through it. And it's been sitting here for two hours. It doesn't take much for me at all. So wow. Yeah. Um, but is this your first of the week? Or is this um, like this is actually this my week? first of the week. So I've been trying to lean into drinking more tea and water to start my day just to see how my body reacts. And if I'm able to just like, pick myself up without caffeine or a significant amount of caffeine. Um, but today, mm-mm. I looked outside, it was dreary, I could barely peel myself out of bed. So had to pay my yeah. my coffee shop a visit and see my friend, my barista. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what I mean, if you didn't need confirmation that Adrielle is a hero, um, she just confirmed that she can go pat, she can go through a Monday morning yeah. without caffeine. <laughs> she doesn't have caffeine until Wednesday. What is that about? Oh, uh, I will say that was only because I woke up too late to go get coffee and to make it. I like I woke up <laughs> with just enough time to walk the dog and to get on Zoom and start facilitating a workshop. So been there that was well rough. if you need <laughs> if you need to get up earlier i've heard anxiety in the middle of the night helps and hey. you can get up and be all kinds of productive at like 3 4 a.m yeah yeah with like i was this morning Oof. <sighs> what do we got in this week's news i mean we've got updates on union strikes mm-hmm. we've got people uh, ai leaders today on capitol hill for yet another AI summit. Yes. I cannot say I am bullish about the outcome of this, but Same. it's a lot of talking. We're yeah. still talking about it. Yeah. I- We've got uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk in the same room um, with, I think Chuck Schumer is now the fight moderator, if if it, uh, I'm following the news correctly. You know, I'm going on going on little hours of sleep, but I think yeah. this is where they do their cage fight, right? Right in yep. Chuck Schumer's living room. Yep, he is the organizer um, for this discussion, <laughs> so it, it should be interesting. It's it's a closed door meeting, 
um, which is the first in a series of what <laughs> the New York Times says is, quote unquote, crash course lessons on AI for lawmakers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. Goodness, goodness. It just feels like this is the latest thing we're having to give lawmakers a crash course on. I don't I honestly don't know. This is like a structural democracy problem to me. Like we were talking about age with Karen last week. I don't think it's an age thing. It is literally just like the world is moving so fast. Mm -hmm. Like, How do you as a lawmaker keep up with all of the things that you are supposed to keep up with? Yeah, that's one thing. I mean, I guess that's why you have AIDS, right? You like bring on people with that mm -hmm. kind of expertise who can help inform policy. Right. But ultimately like we are we are stuck in terms of making big hard decisions as a democracy because of how broken our political system is so it's not even i yeah. guess the lack of expertise as much as it is just the political will to do big hard things mm -hmm. yeah i agree i agree i'm curious to see and, what comes out of this uh, series of crash courses as they're calling them yeah and with that, I'm going to take another sip of coffee and try not to think about that too hard and get too <laughs> depressed this morning. Fair but enough. Speaking of political will, did you see our friends, our neighbors to the north in Canada issued a travel advisory for the United States? I did. I did. I can't say that I'm surprised. There are a number of laws that are affecting those that identify as part of the LGBTQIA plus community. And... I think this is also a signal to us as a country that other countries aren't necessarily tolerant of that and that they're calling us out. Um, I think that's yeah. a pretty bold move to say, hey, you know, travel at your own risk to the U.S. Yep. Specifically, if you are part of the LGBTQ plus yep. community, they are basically saying the U.S. in some parts of it mm -hmm. are is not going to be friendly to you. And it is based on recent legislation recent talking points by you know some politicians it's based on this like child groomer nonsense that mm -hmm. you know people are screaming at parent teacher like board meetings and local school boards like yeah we're we're at a pretty dark place when it comes to um the treatment of our you know lgbtq plus absolutely and family and the um the hrc the human rights campaign they actually issued a similar um sort of state of emergency for those uh, identifying as part of the LGBTQIA community um, earlier this year, back in June. So yeah, yeah, it's they're piling up. Um, and similarly, uh, the NAACP has issued travel advisories to Florida. Um, so you know, America, <laughs> America has a problem. But it is like, <laughs> the. it's just, it's specific parts of America, right? Yeah, like it's just, yeah. We're we're a big Florida. diverse country, but the the it's begin it's diverse in some dark ways. I think mm -hmm. right now, um, yeah, it's 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 not great. No. Um, another depressing American statistic. Sorry, sorry, y'all. We're just uh, we're just throwing this kind of stuff at you today. But did you read this uh, new studies that said two thirds of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck right now? Oh, I sixty one percent. Honestly, yeah. Oh, that's depressing. Yeah, 61% um, yeah, of every, basically one out of every three adults in the U.S. are just scraping by, mostly due to inflationary pressures, according to a new study. Hmm. So we've, we've talked quite a bit about this in the last few weeks, basically about like 
you know, credit card debt is out of control right now. People are putting like experiences on their credit cards so that they can, you know, kind of catch up from the pandemic, or at least, you know, that's the thinking. Mm -hmm. But right now we are not in a great financial position. Like a lot of it is due to inflationary pressure. And, but it feels a little bit, one of the reasons that this worries me is it feels a little bit like our, our tendency to spend into debt Mm -hmm. is what has kept us out of a recession. And in the short term, well, and it's contributed to inflation because we just keep spending no matter how expensive things get, right? Yeah. So in the short term, it's kind of getting us into this like soft landing-ish, you know, from like not getting into a recession. Mm -hmm. But what does this mean for the long term? Like I worry we're creating creating a massive debt bubble here. Like, what's it going to take for this to burst, right? Right, right. I was just reading that inflation quickened uh, in August. It it rose faster overall in August than previous months, in part due to an increase in fuel costs. And so, you know, people need fuel. People need food. These are basic necessities for a lot of folks, uh, especially depending on where you are in in the States. Uh, You know, I'm fortunate that I'm in New York. You're in Chicago. So there is an option to use public transportation, but in a lot of instances, you still may need a, ve- need a vehicle or have to take an Uber, right? And so yeah, everything is just, it, you can find, I feel it at least. I'm like, wow, this is so expensive. Every time I step out to do anything, I'm like, wow, the, yesterday's prices yeah. are not today's, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and I think we mentioned it or talked about this maybe last week. We were talking about the overemployed where people are yeah, right. <laughs> taking on two plus jobs. Um, I'm seeing more and more of that uh, being talked about on social media, which is really interesting. I'm curious to see where that goes. Um, maybe I'll, I'll use, do that as a deep dive in coming weeks. I really want someone to deep dive and do some like really statistical research on the overemployed mm-hmm. and basically say like, are they able to get away with this? Not, not you know, the remote work environment, the flexibility and all that, of course, that contributes to it. But like, are we just overestimating how much time some of these jobs actually take? They're, they're, we must be, right? Like, I think so. Where we, we're creating full-time positions, but it's actually not full-time work, either because we can automate it, we can use AI, right? we can outsource it, I don't know. But like, it does seem like there's some on the hiring end. Oh, yeah. We are, we are misjudging. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, the productivity, right? Absolutely. And so I, I did a went down a little bit of a, a rabbit hole on the Reddit overemployed uh, subreddit. And yes, people are automating a lot of their work. And the thing is that a lot of employers are behind on using AI tools, but these employees mm. are not. And so they are finessing the game. And they're like, oh, this can be automated. And then they sort of uh, get around things by like not being on camera, for example, or time blocking their ca- their calendars to look like they are heads down doing their work, right? When in fact, they are probably on a call <laughs> for the other company that they work <laughs> <Right>. for. <laughs> so yes, people are definitely getting around it. Um, really interesting stuff. Really, really interesting. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it it's a truism that individual people can move faster, learn faster, mm-hmm. figure out, you know, how to do things faster yep. than organizations or teams can. Like yep. They're just, we're always going to be playing catch up in terms of the organization. See, see also democracy, like we were just talking <laughs> about with the AI summit yeah. on Capitol Hill. But it seems like 
not only are U.S. workers using that to move faster, but they are the ones who aren't moving faster are afraid of their jobs becoming obsolete. Yep. You pointed out a new study that highlighted that U.S. workers are worrying technology will make their jobs obsolete. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, yeah. So Gallup uh, conducted has been conducting some research for a while to get a sense of how worried or concerned U.S. workers and employees are about having their jobs replaced by AI or other forms of tech as well. Um, and they started running this survey back in 2017, and the numbers were pretty low, like just below 15% of folks were somewhat concerned. Um, And it jumped pretty significantly from that point up until now in 2023, when roughly 22% of US workers are worried about technology making their roles obsolete. Um, And I think, you know, we really have to consider how many people fully understand the technology, because I I recognize there's such a knowledge gap. So I imagine as more people- fear mongering, right? I think there's fear mongering, but I think there's also a lack of knowledge because, in fact, you know, if if some of these companies don't choose to educate and train up people on specific AI tools and how to use them, their roles may be replaced by these yeah. tools. Um, and so, you know, a lot of experts have been suggesting that companies invest in teaching people how to use these tools and then just sort of shift and modify their role so they can incorporate it. Um, And so I'm curious to see how this evolves and how the data changes over time in terms of people being concerned. Yeah, me too. Um, I tend to be kind of a moderate about, you know, the the disruption, the disruptive forces of this kind of stuff. You know, it's like I, I tend to think that for the most part, most technology has as many kind of labor force gains as it does like displacement in the labor Mm -hmm. and labor force usually. Um, I tend to think that like we overestimate like (laughs) how much technology is going to um, disrupt our jobs in the short term, but underestimate it in the long term. Yeah, definitely. Um, So I don't know. I mean, there's so much fear mongering going on about AI and how AI is, you know, going to replace workers and you've got to get, you know, mastered at AI. And it's like, that's both true and not true, right? Like we have to, we do have to like learn these tools and figure out how to use them and Mm -hmm. become mastered at them. But it doesn't mean that most companies, at least in the short term, are going to be like whole hog, like replacing, you know, teams with AI. No, I mean. Those those are the scary headlines we get, but but (laughs) it's really not true across the labor force, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, you have to also consider how long it takes a lot of companies to implement things. I mean, we were just talking about our government and they're doing crash courses on like AI 101 right now at the end of 2023. (laughs) So let's be real, right? Um, I was catching up with some friends that I used to work with at NYU yesterday, and we were talking about just the... uh, the onboarding process when you are starting a new job and how you, you know, have to complete the I-9 and W-2, all of that can be right. automated. They're not automating it yet. So there is, and yep. it doesn't seem like they have any plans to. So that's just one example of a pretty large organization that is going to be sort of slow to pick up on AI. And there are tons more out there yeah, that are 100%. lagging. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Be, it's so interesting to think about just in the next year. Like where this will have the most impact. Like we can, mm-hmm. we've speculated a lot on this podcast about the creative industry, for example, and how it's affected by this in the short term. We've talked yeah. about like accountants and we've talked about, you know, like IBM freezing hiring. Um, but, you know, again, some of that feels reactionary and I don't mm-hmm. know how much of it's going to stick or become like commonplace. 
Um, or if people aren't going to feel comfortable with it, like, would you feel comfortable like hiring a legal firm that outsources 80% of its legal work to chat GPT, for example? Mm, I don't know that I would right now. (laughs) That's really Even though realistically, chat GPT probably could do the work of 80% of lawyers, you know what I mean? Especially on the like legal document heavy kind of stuff. Yeah. So we are at an interesting kind of transition point. Mm -hmm. um, And it's going to be both fun and terrifying to watch. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Strap up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh. All right. Let's I feel like we can't end our news segment. I mean, there's so many things we could have talked about, but I feel like we can't end our news segment without talking about the huge windfall that Mattel experienced from the Barbie movie. Yeah. Did you read about this? Like more money than they even expected. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. They they were the advertising was I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. It was insane. Movie. It was everywhere. Like things I didn't even think would have Barbie associated with them did. And then of course a lot of people just really love the nostalgia, especially I saw it so many millennials who were just like, oh my gosh, I have to do this Barbie thing. And yeah. um, I went to the beach a few weeks ago and this huge group had a Barbie themed party. Like everything was Barbie pink. They were all <laughs> dressed in pink. Their like plates and cups were pink. So I think um I don't know, in a lot of ways it Barbie almost markets itself as a product as a brand because of that nostalgia and because so yeah. many of us grew up with it so yeah that's, I, mean, I mean that's kind oof. of the same wave that marvel has has ridden for years and years yeah. and years right yeah. like i was so excited when marvel movies were coming out because these were like comic book heroes from my childhood and it was so much fun and geeky nostalgia to like see them on the big screen yeah obviously that has become more and more complicated <laughs> as they've tried to extend this cinematic universe and basically like rehash the same ideas mm-hmm. over and over and over again. Sorry, Marvel. I love you. I'll probably go see the next movie. But <laughs> it is a little tired. Um, <laughs> and, it, you know, I'm not. I guess I would love your opinion on is this repeatable for Mattel? Because it sounds like the CEO went all in on this movie. And, and this article from the Times that we'll link in the, in the show notes yeah. quoted that he really wanted to get it off the ground, even if the movie didn't sing, didn't sell a single doll. Like he believed in this as like the future of Mattel. Mm-hmm. But my question is like, where else does Mattel have the kind of brand equity it had in Barbie? Like where else can they ride this kind of cultural wave? It feels like everything that comes after this is going to feel underwhelming. But you tell me if I'm wrong. I don't, it's hard to say. I mean, I don't think they have any other products or brands that would necessarily take off in the same way. Um, but I, I think that they could do a part two. Will it do as well? Hard to say. I know there are people that were like, they've gone to see the movie like three times. <laughs> and so they, yeah. they couldn't get enough. And so I imagine those folks would certainly be super excited if there's a part two and a follow-up um yeah i don't know there could be right and i mean there's so many different versions of barbie and so there's a lot of opportunity one of my one of the things i was not a fan of with the movie was that i felt they could have highlighted more of the diversity of barbie um yeah and, and that happens very often in movies where you know you have your lead primary white character and then everyone else is just supporting um yeah and so maybe that's what they do as a part two. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they did try to highlight the diversity of like 
Barbie's, I guess, career opportunity. Career. I mean, what would you say? Keyword yeah, try. In terms of, I mean, they were trying <laughs> to say like we we're they women empowerment, women empowerment, right? And so they were showing all of that, you know, in terms of yeah. bar, was it was it Barbie Land? Is that what it was called? The where they were from? I think um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, but you know, again, they're not going to be able to with this kind of brand really nail getting that exactly right. So let's just say they right. maybe did as best they could given what they were working with. But I do, I mean, if you think about, like, G.I. Joe isn't going to have this, like, cultural phenomenon. Like, where do they no. go from here? I think that's just a fascinating question. It feels to me like Nintendo, with its success of Super Mario Brothers, has yeah. a lot more brand equity to pull from. Like, I would go see a Legend of Zelda movie in a heartbeat. That'd, be, that'd be super fun. I can right? see that. I'm trying to think of other, what else does, Mattel has uh, Hot Wheels. Uh, right. Bratz I think dolls. that's where they're going next. If I remember what I read, yeah. Yeah, I could see, I could see Hot Wheels being a thing because I don't. I even loved Hot Wheels as a kid, so maybe that's, maybe that's something. Yeah. Have they done a, a Hot Wheels movie before? Is that a thing? No, I don't think so. I my first reaction was, how do you turn Hot Wheels into a movie? But I guess they did it with Gran Turismo of all. They things. do it with so everything. Like, <laughs> anything you is can possible. Do it with anything, and we are in the we are in the cinematic universe universe. Yeah, so they're gonna try try it with all those. Yeah, definitely. Well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, at least that was a fun thing to end our news segment on. Yeah. I have a feeling that our deep dives are not going to be quite as fun. What are you, what are you bringing to us this week? <laughs> um, it, it's kind of fun, right? They're, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Subjective, right? Um, so EY recently um, released some data and they conducted a survey that found that globally, workers actually do feel a sense of belonging within their workplaces. Um, but despite that, uh, most of them are actually uncomfortable sharing all aspects of their identity. Um, in the DEI space, we often refer to that as covering, um, where you <laughs> are hiding some aspect of who you are. And it's interesting because a lot of people assume that people who are from less represented or historically marginalized identities are the only ones that cover, when in fact, most people regardless of their identity or background, hide some aspect of themselves within yes. the context of the workplace. So um, everyone context switched to some. Yeah. Extent, 100%. yeah. Um, and so really interesting data. And I just wanted to highlight some of the things that they uncovered and also touch on three points that they shared that could increase the sense of belonging and encourage people to just be who they are. This is great because we've been talking about belonging at work for a while. I like yeah. that we're getting some data about it and we can dig in on it. Definitely. Nice, nice find. I'd like to focus on a new study that came out from Mozilla that Ooh. basically talked about how every new modern car brand and every new moder modern car is a, quote, privacy nightmare on wheels. <laughs> basically saying how as cars have gotten smarter, mm -hmm. They are taking more and more and more of our data and feeding it right back into the companies. So I want to talk about this in, in light of how really a lot of the transition to electric vehicles are driving this because of how, you know, like computerized they are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, does the trade-off for switching to electric mean that we also have to trade off in terms of privacy? But I also want to talk about it just in the context of as a company, how you make decisions about what data that you need and how you can be kind of more ethical about, you know, your data collection. 
Sounds good. All right, let's let's do it. Let's get into it. All right, where do you want to start, Adriel? What should we, what should we dig into first? Let's start with these uh, the car privacy or data privacy. All right, so let curious. me just uh, I'll just go over real quick on some of their key findings. So, all twenty five major car brands that they reviewed in their the latest edition of a regular study they call Privacy Not Included, which is <laughs> just great. Um, BMW, Ford, Toyota, Tesla, Kia, Subaru can collect deeply personal data, such as sexual activity, immigration status, race, facial expressions, weight, health, genetic information, and where you are driving to and from. That's terrifying. Wow. It's being gathered by sensors, microphones, cameras, phones, and devices drivers connect to their cars. If you think about how much personal data our phone has, and oh, yeah. you are actually connecting it mm-hmm. to your car, this is they can collect an in, insane amount of data. According to their guide, the very worst offender is Nissan, the Japanese car manufacturer. They admit in their privacy policy to collecting a wide range of information, including sexual activity, health diagnosis, and genetic data, um, but a lot of them are bad. Volkswagen, Toyota, Kia, like they all are bad. Wow. Um, some additional key findings, apps, um, whenever you have kind of an app that corresponds with your cars, which most of them do by now, mm-hmm. um, they're, that is you know where they are collecting a lot of this data. Um, meaningful consent, they, I mean, this is, Mozilla is really going after them here. Meaningful consent is non-existent, they say. Um, basically, there's no way to really not opt in to having all of this user data collected. Um, the privacy policies are bad, and many of them engage in what they call privacy washing, basically pretending to protect your privacy mm-hmm. while not actually doing so. They, I should say car brands are not the only ones that do that. A lot of digital companies are particularly egregious about that. Um, some car brands actually share personal information with law enforcement and governments which we have talked about before in other contexts, but Hyundai's privacy policy, for example, says that they can share data with law enforcement and governments based on, quote, formal or informal requests. Kia's policy says that they share data in many scenarios, quote, if in our good faith opinion, such as required or permitted by law. (laughs) Data breaches are common and consumers have very little control. This is bad. My goodness. This is bad. Um, and what I've noticed, and this is just my read into it, this is not in the report directly that I could tell, but what I've noticed is that as our cars get more electrified, they are moving more into that like digital dashboard style yeah. where you actually are basically driving a big computer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're driving a big computer. It's connected to the internet. You're connecting your personal digital device to it. And all of a sudden, these companies have an amazing amount of access to your data. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was a lot to process. Um, I Coming think, at you hard. I'm yeah, sorry. But. Yeah. And I, I think what, what one of the things that stands out to me the most is the fact that they are taking this data. And I know you mentioned like governments uh, and like, you know, government agencies and things like that where they're sharing it, but they can, they're also selling the data to some third parties. Um, and they're yeah. using this data to make assumptions about people, about their intelligence, their abilities, characteristics, preferences, 
And you know, my DEI cap is just over here like, oh no, oh no, <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> but I mean, on? <laughs> it, that happens across so many industries oh, in yeah. terms of how we kind of like trade data sets and make assumptions about mm -hmm. people and try to read into their consumer behavior and try yep. to create, you know, like consumer demographics and psychographics. Like this is not uncommon behavior across mm -hmm. a lot of corporate America, yeah. but I feel like cars are particularly egregious because of the kinds of data they can collect. Right. Like, do you want Tesla to know that you are driving to an abortion clinic? Yeah. This is a massive amount right? of data that they're collecting. A lot of data all at, like at once. That mm -hmm. is that is very scary. Do you think that as more consumers become aware of this, that they'll shift their spending habits in terms of the types of cars that they want to purchase or invest in? No, that, <laughs> this is what's really depressing is that I have seen very little evidence that privacy concerns ever move the needle on consumer choices. Yeah. I mean, think about the biggest companies in the United States right now are like the big five tech companies where story after story after story has been about what kind of privacy nightmare they are. I mean, even Apple, which you could say is at least trying to create some brand differentiation around privacy, right? Like they've mm -hmm. come out and tried to be, there's many points where you could point to, okay, but what about this in terms of how the iPhone, you know, you know what I mean? Like sure. even they collect massive amounts of data about us through their their ecosystem alone you think about all the like apple has access to my health data apple has access to now they will say that this is encrypted they can't find it you know it's all based in the ecosystem and i think some of that is true again i think some of it is a little to like use this term in this study privacy washing mm -hmm. but you know they may be the best of the worst in terms of <laughs> how much data they're actually collecting and using from us yeah oh that is so true. It it scares me sometimes when I pick up my phone to look at something. Let's say I go on Instagram or whatever app and it shows me an ad about something that I had Googled or that I had texted someone about or insert whatever. Um, right. That's usually my reminder of, oh, what you're doing is always under surveillance. Always. Um, I mean, this is surveillance capitalism, right? Yeah. Like the book that came out a few years ago. Like this is this is what it is. And I and automakers have not had, I feel like they may be going a little like punch drunk with how much data they now have with mm -hmm. their new cars because they didn't have this before, right? Right, right. Oh, this is so interesting. I I don't even know how to how to really unpack it. Like I'm just thinking from a consumer standpoint. Will we ever care about our privacy as a collective? Will we ever care as a society? Yeah. Well, the the part the hard thing about this is that privacy is one of those things where the definition shifts quite a bit, mm -hmm. right? In terms of how we think about it, the goalposts are constantly moving. I remember a few years ago, there's this great kind of overview of the historical definition and the legal definition of privacy and how it shifted in the United States in the New yeah. Yorker. Um, definitely would would recommend looking that up and reading about that to give you some history here but it's hard because the goalposts definitely move and how we think about personal privacy changes a lot based on um the situation based on the company based on what the information actually is mm -hmm. like some things we are fine with being collected some things we aren't but the problem is that we don't have a lot of visibility into it or choice over it with the exception of maybe you know like apple's Apple, again, has made maybe the most moves in this 
um, direction, like the ask app not to track prompt, you know, that you now get whenever an app has to actually ask for that kind of data. Right. You know? Yeah. That we need more options like that that can give us more consumer insight into what they're actually collecting, and we can have more options for being able to say yes or no. Mm-hmm. And Again, you, you saw like Europe leading on this with the GDPR right. and trying to like create some from like an internet tracking standpoint. But again, GDPR was definitely not perfect. So like companies have found ways to get around it. Mm-hmm. So it's we just we haven't had a lot of innovation, but. Companies like Mozilla and others are at least trying to like <laughs> raise the alarm about what's happening, right? Right. From your experience, what would you like to see leaders of these automakers do or of these companies oh, do? Fantastic question. Great segue because I was just <laughs> going to bring that up. I mean, I think that the leaders of the automakers are the, I would give the same advice that I give to any of my clients or anyone that I've talked to about data privacy or, or really digital ethics, like writ large, which is what, like, what do you actually need this data for? Do you have a use case for this data? Because often we collect it just because it's there. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like I literally, they will just collect whatever people will allow them to collect. Just in case. And just in case, maybe we'll have a use case for this one day. The problem with that is that, just as this article ca- calls out, data breaches are common. Right. So now you have collected data with or without a consumer's consent, depending on the context, and it may leak, you know, or, or get breached. And all of a sudden, you are the one who were responsible for that, even though you didn't even have a use for the data in the first place. Sure. So hmm. that's a problem. Um, the second is I would make some serious, like have some serious ethical conversations internally about what are we going to use this data for and do we actually need it? Like literally point by point. I don't see any use case for why a company needs someone's fucking sexual activity. Right. That drives me insane and makes me want to write to my senator. Like there are things <laughs> that these companies are collecting that they have no consumer use case for. There is yeah. zero consumer use case for needing to know someone's sexual activity. I'm well, maybe sorry, they're going to sell it to like, you know, condom companies and, and you know, birth control companies, which is now <laughs> okay. you can buy it over the counter, right? So yeah, maybe let me that's... rephrase. <laughs> let me rephrase. There is no ethical use case for, <laughs> for someone's sexual activity. Yeah. And to my point, yeah. if you just think about the idea of like wanting Tesla run by Elon Musk mm. and knowing when you were driving to and from an abortion clinic, mm-hmm. tell me that you were okay with them having that kind of data. Mm-mm. The location data you should be able to opt into. Like, we, there's a reason why our phones let us opt in and out of who is getting our location data. Like, you can go line by line and say, what do we need this data for? Are we giving people consent to be able to opt in and out of giving us this data? And is there actual, and like, and I mean, is there a business case for it? Again, sometimes we're collecting things and we don't even have a business case for it. But if there is a business case, we need to ask ourselves what the trade-off, what we're asking people to do in terms of sharing this data and start treating consumers like it is their data. Mm-hmm. I mean, that it comes back to this bigger kind of macro question about our tech ecosystem, which is at what point are we going to see ownership over our own data as ours, as an asset of our of each individual person instead of an, as an asset for the company to be able to collect? Mm, yeah, yeah. Ooh, drops I mean, mic. people have made the <laughs> argument that we should be paid 
for the use of our data. Like there have been books written. Don't remember them off the top of my head, but go Google it. There have been <laughs> books written making the argument that basically this is our asset. These companies are mining it without our consent and we should be paid for it. Yeah, they're they're making money off of it, especially if they're selling your data. Um, maybe not today, but it, next year. Even if they're not selling years. it, they're using it to inform the design of their products in the future, right? right? Like yeah. Or inform new product lines. Yeah. So they are still creating economic value and, and making money from it, even if they don't sell it. Yeah. Oh, now I'm thinking about also just like the manipulation. The more you know about a person, the further you can appeal to them with your product, with your marketing, with your yeah. your language, your visuals. Oh, that's that's so scary. So yeah. scary. And again, the more we move into an EV future, the more we are basically driving around giant smartphones. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. they're connected to Wi-Fi that have giant batteries that have massive computers. This is a problem that's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Absolutely. So on that note, <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. tell us about belonging at work, Adriel. Yeah, so there, as I, as I mentioned, uh, EY conducted this survey, and they conducted it globally, and they wanted to, uh, this is actually their third iteration of what they call their belonging barometer. Um, and the idea behind this survey is to expose different perspectives of working adults throughout various industries and organizations across the globe. Um, they've been particularly examining how workplace flexibility and uh, this continuous economic uncertainty, which we're constantly talking about um, in our sort of I'm using air quotes, post-COVID world, because COVID is still out here. Um, but yeah. understanding how that is affecting our sense of belonging in the workplace. And so this is, like I said, the third edition of this. And they found that uh, a good majority of workers globally feel a sense of belonging. Um, some people even likened it to having a second home, which I thought was ex interesting. Um, mm. So around like 41%, so almost half. But what was really interesting is that the report also found, or the survey also found that roughly 75% have felt excluded at work, um, despite feeling the sense of belonging. And so a lot of that is tied to, again, covering this idea that, you know, I can't fully be myself. I am probably hiding some aspect of my identity. Um, and we've touched on this a little bit in previous episodes where I, I think I shared with you, I've oh. been just kind of really reflecting on my own perception of what it means to belong and do I really need to belong in the workplace? And I, if you asked me a few years ago, I've been like, yes, absolutely. I want everyone to feel like they can belong and they can hundred percent be themselves. Now my perspective is drastically different in that I don't necessarily need to belong in every workspace or working environment mm. that I'm in. Um, and I'm speaking obviously from a consultant standpoint, but even as I think about if I were to go back into a workplace, I don't need to necessarily feel like I belong. I do want to feel included, meaning I want people to invite me to share my thoughts, invite my ideas, consider me in decision making. Um, but my sense of belonging doesn't necessarily, for me personally, need to come from a workplace. I can get that when I go visit my family or when I hang out with my friends who I share similarities with, right? And to just add on to that, you know, this number is of, of feeling 
excluded or, or having to hide your identity was even higher for those that identify as part of the LGBTQIA community, mm. where they feel uncomfortable sharing aspects of their identity. So here in these United States, where we have a travel advisory for folks that identify that way, that makes 100 mm-hmm. percent. Mm-hmm. sense absolutely absolutely i just said that makes 100 percent sense 100 saying that sense. doesn't make 100 percent sense you <laughs> know what i'm saying that's a 3 a.m 4 a.m wake up talking <laughs> that's what i'm saying yeah, the 100. yeah i was about to say 100 percent again doesn't yeah. matter i'm gonna stop talking you keep talking. <laughs> you say smart things now oh please please um what else can i highlight here oh also over half so about 63 percent of the respondents in this report um across generational lines want to see DE&I prioritized in their workplace. Um, ah. it, of course, and there are, are a number of studies that have been highlighting this, it, you know, it's of even greater importance for younger generations. So Gen Zers and millennials in particular are like, we want to see some DE&I initiatives here in the workplace. Um, so that was interesting. I've also come across, like I said, a few other studies that back that up. And I'm like, that tracks with what I've seen, yeah. at least in my work, for sure. Um, and then in terms of how leaders can, can sort of continue this, continue supporting the feeling of belonging and also foster inclusion and sort of help us lower that, that number, that percentage of people feeling excluded. There are really three things that surface from this report. The first is workplace flexibility. We keep coming back to it with the RTO plans like ding, over ding, ding. and over. There's and a over. we need another sound effect for that. We do. We need we should get like a little soundboard, right? Um but yes, there was a significant note from the survey on the impact of people having a sense of belonging when they have hybrid work options, when there is flexibility there. Um it really helps, right? So whether that's the location, their working hours, having flexibility was like a top motivator for instilling DE&I within their own teams. Oh, my God. I feel like we just need to dig into this for a second because yeah. this is so good. Yeah. So because the reason why a lot of companies are forcing people back into the office is on a false premise. It is on the premise that we have to be together mm-hmm. all the time or most of the time in right. order to create a sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. And this research is basically saying the opposite. It's saying when we enable flexibility, we give people the opportunity to live the kind of life that they need to live. Yes. We think about parents. We think about people who have long commutes. We think about, again, all these like work-life type issues that get affected when we have to go into the office. Right. We are actually decreasing their sense of belonging instead of increasing it. Right, right. Um, and I, the top I feel two like we responses. Just need to play that on repeat. Right. right? Like we, just, <laughs> we just need to staple just this statistic back, to right? our foreheads. Yes, exactly. And so the top two responses when they were surveying this portion of when they were really digging into the flexibility piece, um, again, there was a sense of there was an increased sense of belonging because the organization is being more flexible. And also really interesting is that because these folks feel that they have now been encouraged to actually share their opinions, their thoughts, and express what their preferences are. So again, we keep coming back to leaders need to listen. Organizations need to listen to their people. What do they need? We don't need to just do this RTO plan because we saw Elon and his friends doing it. 
right? It, oh, we shouldn't do anything we see Elon <laughs> and his friends doing. I think that's exactly. a general Hello. rule. Right? So. Oh, God. Did you see? I don't know. Like, side note. Did you see his, like, argument with the ADL of all people over the week? I don't even want to get into it. No. But, like, I don't Elon, Elon like I continues to, to Elon. I just. Anyway. I just. I mean, the, the like. I love how they put um, the future talent poll depends on companies prioritizing DEI because mm -hmm. the younger generations are the ones who really want to see companies putting a priority on that. Yep. So I think another big headline and one that we've talked about a lot is despite the political ramifications, despite mm -hmm. like what you may be afraid of in terms of people pushing back about your DEI efforts, they really matter. They're going to continue to matter. And they're especially going to continue to matter if you want to hire people who are up and coming in the talent pool. Yeah, yeah. 74% um, of the respondents, so three quarters of the respondents, um, said that DE&I is a, a major factor into their decision of where they work. So yeah. they want to see companies prioritize this and they take that into consideration when they are choosing a workplace. I know we're often, especially as leaders, thinking about our decision. Who are we choosing to hire? Who do we want to come in? They're also choosing you too. It's like exactly. dating. Like it's not one-sided exactly. by any means. So I think 100%. companies often it's forget a mutual that. value exchange. Exactly, exactly. And um, in you know in in our current working world, people are constantly hopping around from job to job. People aren't staying in or with a company for decades like our parents were and our grandparents were. They're not afraid to hop around. So if you are not able to provide them with what they need and this flexibility you know yep. <laughs> they're they're not going to stay there your attrition is going to going to be pretty rough so yeah go back and listen to our expert interview with joe mole from a few weeks ago makes yep. a very compelling case around the data for this yep 100 percent. and then the last thing that i want to touch on that surfaced from this report was they found that equitable pay may be the fastest route to addressing inequity and this one really, as soon as I saw this, I was so intrigued because there Did was you light up. <laughs> I, well, listen to this. I don't know if you, you heard about this, but um, a few days ago, there was a memo that was released and apparently Google has been underpaying black employees. Um, there was a spreadsheet that was leaked mm. that showed that black employees are earning $20,000 less on average than their white coworkers. Um, and so just thinking about that as like such a major piece of inequity, just pay um, yeah. it is so interesting. Um, and equitable pay has been cited uh, by, was cited by 40% as the top contributor to having a sense of equity at work by those that were surveyed by EY. That's fascinating. Yep. And it's interesting in, in light of news cycle saying people are starting to cut pay. Like there was a big news cycle this week saying Walmart is starting to cut starting pay for mm -hmm. some of its new hires. I heard about that. So what kind of pipeline are you creating if you're starting them out? You know, like I get, you know, there's obviously a discrepancy in, in terms of entry level and, and yeah. management, but Walmart hires a lot from internal. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes me a little nervous about their long-term pipeline if they're like cutting out the knees of the people who are just joining. Absolutely. Um, I'm sure that there have been many economic factors, but I think this, this article points to that being a huge part of how you address inequity. Yep. Pay your people well. Yep. I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to. Absolutely. Absolutely. So do you, just to wrap this up, because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. We've been talking around this idea for so many weeks, but just to wrap up this, 
do you think belonging is on a spectrum? Like, do we think too much about do I belong or do I not belong? Yeah. But it seems like it's very context dependent. It, you know, again, it's very like kind of project dependent. It's very job dependent. Like, can we just belong in parts of our work and not others to your point about like everyone's kind of hiding something everyone's not no one's bringing their full self to work absolutely i think it's also i'll add on identity dependent and experience dependent Ah, right um so yes i i think there is a spectrum i think it will vary i think your sense of belonging may shift any on on any given day even let's say i'm working on a project today with this team and on that team i feel a sense of belonging because of I don't know, shared experiences, identities, perspectives. And then within another team that I'm working on a project with tomorrow, I feel a disconnect, right? And so I think there certainly is a spectrum and it can vary even day to day, hour to hour, even depending on what you do. Um, And that's okay. But I think, again, it's up to individuals to determine what level of, of belonging they need and want within their workplace. Um, I've spoken to people that are like, I don't need to feel like I belong at all. I just want to come in, do my job. I want you to value my skill set and my experiences. And then I want to go home and do what I do. That's okay, too, in my opinion. So, yeah. If people are interested in reading more about this, my friend Sarah Judd Welch from uh, the firm Sharehold did a huge study a few years ago called Redesigning Belonging. Okay. Um, you might be interested in this. Yeah. I'll, we'll include it in the show notes, but they did a lot of research about belonging at work and it'd be interesting to dig in on that and, and see what makes people really feel like they belong. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, let's talk about our one good thing. So you ready to end the pod on a good note? Yeah, why not? All right. What do you have for good news for us this week, Adriel? I recently came across a an ad campaign from Adweek that is sponsored by Amazon Ads with the headline of Why Inclusivity Matters. And they added this very short, succinct statement that I thought was really powerful to be coming from Adweek, which was inclusive advertising is a business imperative. Um, and it's something that I, you know, we constantly talk about this business imperative, but it was just so refreshing to see them calling out the importance of you know, making sure that people, especially consumers, which we talked about a lot today, feel seen, they feel heard, they feel appreciated. Um, and so one of the most impactful ways for brands to express this is by prioritizing DE&I. Um, and so they really, within this, this uh, I don't even know what to call it, because it looks so much like an ad. It's really, really visually cool. It's like the design work is, is amazing. Um, but it gives it gives a starting point for brands on how you actually do this. Um, earlier this year, Amazon Ads actually launched uh, what's called the Allies of Diversity Audience, um, which has been doing a lot of research to reach different types of consumers, um, to really activate their commitment to driving change and to encourage people to be stronger allies. And so um, just wanted to to call this out. I thought it was a good, it was just refreshing to see something like positive about DE&I and for a group like Adweek to really be thinking about this and prioritizing it and really role modeling what they think the rest of the advertising industry should be aiming for. So yeah. I definitely think we need more people kind of taking lines in the sand right now when yep. um, it's under attack. 
It's fascinating that it's sponsored by Amazon ads. Yeah, that part I'm not quite <laughs> sure about. <laughs> well, I mean, so Amazon's is kind of, I mean, it's weird to think of them as an upstart, but in the advertising industry, they kind of are because they're competing with the duopoly of Google ads mm -hmm. and, and Meta's and Facebook's ecosystem. Yeah. Um, so this is them, I think, trying to say like, we're the more inclusive like advertising platform. Come advertise on us. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to say that like, I think there's a lot of people who kind of roll their eyes and are very cynical about this, understandably, <laughs> because of where we've been. Yeah. But I don't think it's bad that like they're spending corporate money on trying to promote inclusivity and trying to like position themselves as being a more inclusive firm. I actually think this is hopefully indicative of, you know, how they are going to run their platform. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they they launched the um, the Black Business Accelerator as well, which helps Black-owned businesses uh, promote their products through their advertising services. So things like that, I I personally think require dollars. We're constantly talking about resourcing DEI and you know people walking the talk. Well, this is their version of it. It may not be perfect. Yeah. Uh, it may not. It, may, it might not even work. We don't know. But they just they just launched it this year, and I think it's it's worth trying and it's better than nothing. It's better than Agreed. just putting up a, a black square or a rainbow flag and saying, <laughs> right. all right, we support D&I. Um, this is actually them gathering research and data and sharing it and encouraging others to do the same. So yeah, let's spend more corporate money on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. All right. Well, I want to talk about how the gap between men and women in the workplace is at a record low in terms of labor force participation. So there was a great chart that came out this week, and you can kind of see from 1950 to today how it is just like I'm gonna, I'm like ver <laughs> like doing this thing with my hands, or it's like coming together um, in terms of women joining the workplace, and this is a little sad, like men kind of leaving it. And we've talked a little bit in the past about kind of you know, struggles with masculinity in men. I think this that little dip in men participating in the labor force has something to do with that. I'm sure there's other macro trends. But the bigger point is that it's actually the like starting to meet and be um, close to equal. Men are now at 68.2% US labor force participation. Women are at 57.7%. So they are closing in in terms of men um, in the workforce. And I would say that mm. if you look at the educational trends and how many women are going to college versus how many men would not be surprised if this line actually crosses in a few years. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to see how this plays out with the uh, COVID funding for childcare, which is running out at the end of this month, which is going to leave, I think they said Great like question. 6 million children and their families without childcare. So... Great question. They did uh, note that a part of this is the rise of remote and flexible work. We mm. just talked about remote and flexible work is right. what allows you to be a more inclusive workplace. Well, that includes women with chil young children yeah. who can remain in the workplace when they have a more remote and flexible job. Yep. So that is driving this. It also, good news, um, the gender pay gap is also the narrowest on record. Hmm. So there's some good news here. Okay. Things to celebrate. I hope we yeah, continue. We're not on this all the trajectory. way there. Yeah, we're not all the way there, but we're getting there. Baby steps. <laughs> That's right. Celebrate wins where we can. Amen. That's the point of one good thing. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we started doing this. Exactly. Otherwise, this is be all depressing all the time. Oh goodness.
All right, I'm gonna go have like three more cups of coffee. Yes. Um, and wake myself back up. You've got but this. This has been great. <laughs> Appreciate you, Adriel, as always. Yes. You want to hear more about uh, leadership? You can visit our website at leadership.show or follow us on Instagram at leader sh underscore t. And you know what? Come by, say hi. We'd love to hear from you. React to this week's episode. We want to know what you think about gender pay gaps, EVs that are stealing our identity, <laughs> <laughs> belonging at work, all the things that we've talked about. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening to Leadership. Our producer is Dave Sandell. Thinking about starting your own podcast? Connect with him at davesandell.com. You can find more information about Caleb and his work and even hire him to speak on change leadership at calebgardner.com or 18coffees.com. And find his book, No Point B, Rules for Leading Change in the New Hyperconnected, Radically Conscious Economy, wherever books are sold. You can find more about me, Adrielle, and my diversity, equity, and inclusion work at adrielleparker.com. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash adrielleparker for more candid discussions on DEI and for more insight on inclusive leadership. 